and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with reports from Human Rights Watch at the Saudi Arabian border with Yemen that uncovered brutal and barbaric military force being used against Ethiopian refugees, hundreds and perhaps thousands of whom are being shot and blown up by Saudi border guards almost as sport. Joining us to discuss the disregard for human rights that has trickled down from the country's murderous leader, Mohammed bin Salman, to its soldiers is John Hoffman, a policy analyst in defense and foreign policy at the Cato Institute and a professor at George Mason University specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. He was recently awarded the 40 Under 40 Award from the Middle East Policy Council for his work on U.S. foreign policy, and we will discuss his article at Foreign Policy the Arab Gulf's new nationalism. Ambitious leaders in Riyadh and Abu Dhabi are restructuring national identity to solidify their rule. Then we'll examine the warning from the State Department and the U.S. Embassy in Minsk, Belarus, for American citizens to immediately leave the country. Joining us is Dr. Tatiana Kulakevich, who is a researcher on Eastern Europe, born and raised in Belarus. She is a permanent instructor in research methods and quantitative analysis at the University of South Florida School of Interdisciplinary Global Studies and a research fellow and affiliated faculty at the University's Institute on Russian, European and Eurasian Studies. Her research focuses on international political economy, migration and protest politics. Then finally, we will speak with Jody Evans, the co-founder and co-director of Code Pink, who has been a peace, environmental, and women's rights and social justice activist for over 40 years. She served in the administration of Governor Jerry Brown and ran his presidential campaign. The co-editor of two books, Twilight of Empire, Responses to Occupation, and Stop the Next War Now, Effective Responses to Violence and Terrorism. She has also produced several documentary films, including the Oscar-nominated The Most Dangerous Man in America and Howard Zinn's The People Speak. And she joins us to argue that the recent New York Times article criticizing her and her husband and Code Pink was propaganda and McCarthyism. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now, John Hoffman, a policy analyst in defense and foreign policy at the Cato Institute and a professor at George Mason University specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. He was recently awarded the 40 Under 40 Award from the Middle East Policy Council for his work on U.S. foreign policy in the region. And his work has been featured in Middle East Policy, Open Democracy, The Cipher Brief and Foreign Policy Magazine. And he has an article at Foreign Policy, The Arab Gulf's New Nationalism. Ambitious leaders in Riyadh and Abu Dhabi are restructuring national identity to solidify their rule. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Hoffman. 
Oh, thank you as always, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, John. And in terms of Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi dictator, consolidating his rule, he's also practicing his brutality, which he's famous for because of the murder and dismemberment of the Washington Post journalist, Toshoji. But the idea that his security forces on the southern border with Yemen are just shooting Ethiopian migrants almost like sport. I mean, the migrants are saying that the bullets rain down on them and that they use heavy weapons to just blow people apart. Hundreds, perhaps even thousands, are being killed. Yeah, no, the, the Human Rights uh, Watch report that came out is incredibly disturbing. And, you know, this is just another, you know, uh, incident of Mohammed bin Salman's brutality. There were uh, there was an element of the report that really struck me. And it said, you know, certain Saudi guards were pulling some of these migrants, you know, capturing them first and then asking them upon detention, which limb of your body would you prefer to be shot in? And, you know, this this level of brutality is what Mohammed bin Salman brings to Saudi Arabia, what he brings to the Middle East. And, you know, while he's trying, you know, very hard and, you know, with some success to present this image of Saudi Arabia as this new, you know, modern and, you know, forward looking country with all these grand domestic projects, all this involvement in sports. There are concerts now in Saudi Arabia. He is effectively just trying to reformulate authoritarian rule within Saudi Arabia through blood. And this is just the latest disgusting example. So Biden, of course, some time back said he would make Mohammed bin Salman a pariah. But since then, he's had to kind of eat his words and do the famous fist bump. And I don't think he got much in return for it. So is this just a case of the foreign policy establishment Corbett America, I don't know exactly how to describe the pro-Saudi bloc, but most people assume that at the end of the day, it has a lot to do with oil and little to do with principle. In other words, it's an example of what's called realpolitik, where a nation acts not according to its ideals, but in its so-called interests. Yeah, you know, on, on the campaign trail, Biden talked a big talk. He said, you know, we were going to turn Mohammed bin Salman into a pariah. He said we weren't the United States wouldn't check its values at the door to buy oil. You know, the, uh, and all of this, you know, proved to be just, you know, campaign fluff. But, you know, what's really disappointing is the fact that right now there is a fundamental disconnect between U.S. and Saudi interests. The actions and behaviors of Mohammed bin Salman and Saudi Arabia in no way, shape or form advance the safety or prosperity of the American people. In fact, they threaten both in, you know, that I've argued, you know, extensively. And the fact that Biden not only reneged on his uh, promises to even just you know, reassess the relationship with Saudi Arabia. The fact of the matter is, is that he is now considering going where no U.S. president has gone before, and that is offering a formal security guarantee to Saudi Arabia in return for them normalizing relations with Israel. And he, and he appears to be doing this behind the backs of Congress, behind the backs of, of course, the American people. Um, and, you know, this is a very alarming time in U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. 
So why do you think then Biden is doing Netanyahu's bidding? I think ultimately what it comes down to is this new dominating framework in Washington, D.C., that everything is Russia, China, Russia, China, Russia, China, especially China. You know, and the Biden administration believes, wrongly in my opinion, that by creating a more formalized entity within the Middle East, you know, from the foundation of the Abraham Accords, that this can advance U.S. interests in the Middle East, you know, and keep these actors, one, from pivoting towards Russia and China, and two, can keep these actors firmly in the U.S. camp and pursue policies according to our own interests. This is, I've, I've written extensively on this on how this is just fundamentally incorrect, but the people in Washington who have Biden's ear, you know, Brett McGurk, Jake Sullivan, Anthony Blinken, they are the ones spearheading this effort, and this is the belief that they hold, and this is the belief that they're feeding to the Biden uh, administration. And has Mohammed bin Salman and MBZ, Mohammed bin Zayed, have they played a game to sort of lure the United States into this deal with Israel, the the so-called Abraham Accords? Oh, by, absolutely. By, you know, being... MBS is, is close to Putin and apparently admires him. Certainly doesn't like Biden, but he admires Putin. And of course, Saudi Arabia made a, a rapprochement with Iran that was brokered by China, and they gave a big... MBS rolled out the red carpet for uh, Xi Jinping, and it's developing close ties with China. So did they pivot to China and Russia in order to get the US's attention and now we're making a deal. Is that how it played out? So I think uh, there's two elements to this. One, for the first part of your question, when you're saying, when you were asking, you know, did this, did they kind of plan for this to happen? Absolutely. Uh, They are sitting back right now, I guarantee you, absolutely laughing because they're saying, oh my gosh, we did it. Well, we're, we, we, we manipulated this return of great power politics to the point now where the United States is considering signing into law defending our regimes, both externally and, of course, internally. You know, if so this is, uh, you know, everybody always points to threats like, you know, Iran or something like that. But such an agreement would also have to entail the United States coming to protect these governments if they were challenged internally from their own citizens, which is a key part that a lot of people forget. Now, regarding Russia and China and, and a possible pivot to, uh, you know, from of these countries towards Russia and China, I would argue that they're not pivot, pivoting towards these countries. What they're doing is Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are recognizing that we are moving into a new global era. We are moving into a what is called a multipolar era. The United States is no longer no longer the sole dominant actor. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to work with Russia and China on places where they have shared interests. This is, you know, shared, you know, commitment to this overall authoritarian ethos and this, you know, idea of, you know, counter-revolution, whether it be in the Middle East or in in China or in Russia. And it's also, you know, another big part of this is economic. You know, China is now the largest trade investor uh, or a trade partner, investor, and oil consumer in the Middle East. So, of course, you know, they have natural economic interests with Beijing in particular. But do they view Russia and China as a alternative 
to the United States? Absolutely not, because neither Russia or China has the ability to assert such a dominating presence in the Middle East. And even if they tried to look at how well it went for the United States, you know, so it's it's all a big game uh, and they are playing it masterfully. Well, they're also, Saudi Arabia is also, along with, what, 70-odd African states, uh, thinking or toying with the idea of joining the BRICS, uh, which is having a summit right now in South Africa. So I guess the point I was trying to make is that Saudi Arabia is in the catbird seat, right? They can play the U.S. off against China Mm -hmm. and Russia. Is that how you see it? Oh, 100% precisely. It, 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 I think you're exactly right. It's, w- what this is is a case where we have the return of, you know, or academics or policymakers, you know, everybody calls it the return of great power politics. But the, everybody always neglects the fact that states such as Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Turkey, all these other states that aren't great powers in the sense, you know, they're more like middle powers. They have agency, too. They are not just pawns. You know, they are going to maneuver themselves accordingly to best advance their own interests. And for Saudi Arabia and the UAE, that means playing the United States, Russia and China off of one another to see who will give me the most concessions. So this deal, if it's done and it looks like it will be done, the extension of the Abraham Accords, for the U.S. to give security guarantees to Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states in exchange for their recognition of Israel. And the UAE in particular wants to form a high-tech hub with the Israelis who have a very, very mature and successful high-tech sector, although they're kind of upset now about Netanyahu's drift into religious nationalism uh, and taking over the Supreme Court or neutering the Supreme Court, which the tech sector talent feels is going to be very bad for Israel. But that's a sort of side issue compared to the the big picture here. So in other words, is this Abraham Accords, it's probably going to condemn the Palestinians to perpetual marginalization, but it also condemns the Saudi people to living under a brutal dictatorship, right, indefinitely. Oh, absolutely. And and it's not just the Palestinians or the the Saudi people. It's the entirety of the Middle East. And, you know, I've, I've written a lot on how, you know, the Abraham Accords at their heart were a agreement between high-level political elites in places like the UAE, Israel, uh Bahrain, you know, now Morocco and, and also Sudan, it's, they're designed to maintain the status quo and they're designed to keep the United States as the security guarantor of this status quo. The more the United States vests its own interests in the expansion of the Abraham Accords, the more the United States is actually undermining our its interest in the Middle East. So by perceiving as the, the, the expansion of the Abraham Accords as an interest in and of itself, the United States is actually sacrificing its interests. 
Then when you actually come to consider what this is going to mean for the Middle East, it's going to mean more repression. It's going to mean more exclusion. It's going to mean, you know, more instability. And this will stretch from, you know, Palestine to Saudi Arabia to Egypt, you know, where have you. This is uh, if Biden goes through with this deal with Saudi Arabia, I think this will be the worst U.S. foreign policy decision since Iraq, maybe even worse. Well, I mentioned the demonstrations in Israel from secular Israelis against the religious nationalist government of Netanyahu that want to basically take away the independence of the Supreme Court. And much of the demonstrations are also focused on protecting Israeli democracy. And the argument is that Israel's often prided itself on being the only democracy in the Middle East. Um, but Clearly, a lot of Israeli citizens are concerned that Netanyahu is undermining us. And the Abram Accords will take that even further, right, by getting into bed with these horrible despots. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, you make a good point there. And also, when we were discussing Biden's uh, campaign promises, you know, Biden was and always has been a staunch supporter of Israel. But when he was on the campaign trail and when he was asked about Netanyahu, he said, you know, hey, me and Bibi, you know, he referred to him as he was like, me and Bibi are friends, but he even knows that what I think he's doing is ridiculous. Now, while in office, Biden has just stood by as Netanyahu pursues these policies, whether it be domestically inside Israel or whether it be in the occupied territories. So, you know, what we've seen from the Biden administration is uh, as his Middle East advisor Brett McGurk called it a back to basics approach, which is going to be detrimental for the region, detrimental for U.S. interests, and as this continues to grow, detrimental for the world. So then where's the pushback coming, apart from yourself and a few other analysts, to what's going on with Saudi Arabia, and particularly now in the context of these latest reports of the brutality of Saudi border guards shooting hundreds, perhaps thousands of Ethiopian refugees who are fleeing a hideous situation in Ethiopia and are being, you know, blown up and shot almost for sport by Saudi border guards. And this there's a reflection of the kind of brutality that is inherent in the regime of Mohammed bin Salman who came to power with the help of Donald Trump and uh, murdered and dismembered a critic who happened to be a journalist for the Washington Post and, you know, dismembered him, spread his body into the forests of Turkey and then shipped his head back to uh, Mohammed bin Salman for a prize in a kind of medieval way. So, you know, a lot of people in this country were upset about the Saudi role in in 9-11, and that didn't seem to change our policy. What will change our policy? That is the million-dollar question, and when you ask where is the pushback, I think that's the the gravest part of this entire situation is where is the pushback? Why, why if is the Senate not going crazy at the idea of Biden going behind their backs to strike such a deal with Saudi Arabia. I understand, you know, Congress right now is 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 on recess, but I think more congressional oversight on this issue is imperative. And the 
outcry that should be happening within the United States, the idea of the United States, you know, our republic, signing a mutual security guarantee with an absolute monarchy, and aside from that, one of the most repressive and brutal states on planet Earth, this should repulse every American, every policymaker, but it doesn't seem to be doing that. And this is the real concerning part. And whether or not this deal actually goes through, that the the harm of this deal, the worry surrounding this deal is the ambiguity. Is Biden going to be able to offer them some sort of NATO-type Article 5 agreement that would require, in theory, a vote in the Senate? Or is he going to sign some sort of agreement with Saudi Arabia akin to what the United States did with Iran in the 2015 JCPOA accords? So the ambiguity surrounding this is is most concerning. But in terms of what will actually get Washington to get on the right side of history with all of these things – I don't see it happening anytime soon. I think the only thing that would ever make that happen is a personnel change. Well, John Hoffman, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Of course, Ian. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with John Hoffman, who's a policy analyst in defense and foreign policy at the Cato Institute and a professor at George Mason University specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. He was recently awarded the 40 Under 40 Award from the Middle East Policy Council, and he has an article at Foreign Policy, The Arab Gulf's New Nationalism, Ambitious Leaders in Riyadh and Abu Dubai are Restructuring National Identity to Solidify Their Rule. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the warning from the State Department and the U.S. Embassy in Minsk, Belarus, for American citizens to immediately leave the country. Let's be friends, the word we use every day. Most of the time we use it in the wrong way. Now you can look the word up again and again, but the dictionary doesn't know the meaning of friends. And if you ask me, you know I couldn't be much help because a friend's somebody you judge for yourself. Some are okay and they treat you real cool And some mistake your kindness for being the fool We like to be with some because they're funny Others come around when they need some money Some you grew up with around the way And you're still real close to this Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing Available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org And joining us now is Dr. Tatiana Kulakevich Who is a researcher on Eastern Europe She's born and raised in Belarus And is a permanent instructor in research methods and Quantitative Analysis at the University of South Florida School of Interdisciplinary Global Studies and a research fellow and affiliated faculty at the University's Institute on Russian, European and Eurasian Studies. And her research focuses on international political economy, migration and protest politics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Tatiana Kulikevich. Uh, hi, uh, Ian. Uh, it's nice to be back. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And what do you make of the announcement today by the United States State Department and the U.S. Embassy in Minsk, the Belarusian capital, that they've told American citizens to get out of the country immediately? And apparently there's a scramble to try and get out. A lot of the border crossings are closed. And trying to get a flight out of Minsk to London Now the tickets are selling for as much as $10,000. So what's going on? Yeah, well, when I first heard about it, uh, I 
I, I remember that it's not the first time uh, such warning was issued by the United States Embassy. Uh, it happened in 2022 when uh, uh, Russia and Belarus were planning and gathering for uh, Allied Resolve, Resolve 2022. It was also a military training. Um, uh, there was a large-scale Russian military um, build-up in Belarus at that time. It was right before the uh, Russia invaded uh, Ukraine. And at that time, the United States um, uh, warned um, uh, about uh, the large buildup of the troops and possible invasion. And this time uh, it is similar, but a little bit different. So this time is also right before the big uh, um, uh, military exercises. Uh, actually, two of them are planned. Uh, one is Shield of the Union, which is the name, and it's planned uh, at the end of the September. And uh, there is another one planned that's called the uh, West 2023. Uh, and uh, there is a, you know, Russian military gathering. And as we know, the Wagner is on the Belarusian territory. Um, also, there are news about, we, we've heard the news about the nuclear tactical weapons on the Belarusian territory, even though the United States uh, ha has never confirmed it. Uh, but Russia claims this. So uh, the the difference between these two warnings is that this time the United States Embassy is actually, you know, emphasizes the, the inability to assist United States citizens if they need help. Um, and they tell about the arbitrary laws in Belarus and the possibility of detention and the involvement in the war and uh, all these border closures, as you mentioned, and the expensive flight tickets. And uh, this is kind of the message that I hear. So yes, it's dangerous, it's not safe. Uh, basically leave uh, Belarus uh, before it's too late. But is there a f broader fear that it's not just about arresting Americans, uh, it might be about civil unrest? Is there any indication that Russia needs to sort of crack down and somehow Lukashenko's grip is loosening? I mean, is there any indications in that? Or is, is there a fear, as the polls have indicated, that they're worried about some kind of military action in what they call the Suwalki Gap, which is a thin corridor of land between Poland and Lithuania that links uh, Poland and Lithuania, and it's right up against Kaliningrad, which, of course, is a landlocked piece of Russian territory. Yeah, that's. Oh, I agree with you, and I, but we need to understand that Suwalki Gap, which is a 60-mile strip, or it is a Polish territory. So, and Polish territory is already NATO. And uh, if uh, these uh, exercises, military exercises, you know, in quotation marks, are gonna be spilled into Polish territory, Suwalki Gap, that's aggression against NATO, and it's very questionable that uh, Russia is able to deal with this, considering uh, the war uh, on, on the, the Ukrainian territory. And also, uh, Polish uh, uh, government today uh, announced uh, that they sent or they are sending thousands of uh, NATO uh, troops 
to the on this territory of the Suvalki Gap. So they are, and the closures of the borders are also connected to that uh, Lithuanian borders and Polish borders. And uh, but I would say two things. So I uh, let's remember the uh, again the war. It's all connected to the war in Ukraine, and we now see the successes with the counteroffensive of Ukrainian uh, military in the south in the two regions, which are Kherson and Zaporizhia. And today we saw the news that one of the uh, places, you know, small uh, population places, which is called Robotnia, was uh, freed by Ukrainian uh, forces. And that's important because it's very close to the railroad, which supplies uh, uh, military, Russian military uh, in the south. And if this uh, railroad is, um, you know, intercepted, then uh, the southern front is is going to be uh, under Ukrainian. Well, basically, Ukraine might go to the Azov Sea, so they are in in defense in the other two regions towards the north and close to Belarus. And one of the explanations with this military exercises and uh, um, and all the activities on the Belarusian territory is the destruction of uh, potentially kind of destructing Ukrainian forces towards the north and uh, moving the forces from the south where they are having successes, um, kind of, uh, you know, protecting the northern border. So one, one way is destructions. And in this connection, a lot of talk is about provocations that Belarus and Russia are going to be provoking NATO and provoking Belarusian neighbors and and uh, all those provocations are again connected to Ukrainian uh, war on the Ukrainian territory. Another explanation is also that well, Lukashenko's grip on power, he is controlling its own army, and we know that sovereignty, you know, the definition of sovereignty is the monopoly of violence on the territory. So he has some monopoly of violence, even though Russian uh, forces are on Belarusian territory. So he kind of is not in control, but he is in control. And he doesn't want to send the Belarusian troops to Ukrainian territory, but he needs to show support and some kind of loyalty to Russian government. And this way, by being involved in these exercises, he does show that without going, sending the troops directly on the Ukrainian territory. As we've saw, the, the, one of the evidence of that is uh, that Last week or two weeks ago, we heard about the news that uh, missiles were launched from the Belarusian territory. Again, uh, the, the thing that we saw at the beginning of the war, but, but but for a long time it has not happened. But it was not true, and uh, some kind of a propaganda wants to, wants Belarus to be involved more. And Lukashenko, it's not in Lukashenko's interest because he loves power. So there is a possibility then of the Russians opening a new front in the north to take the pressure off the Ukrainian attacks in the south. As you say, they're getting close to cutting off the Russian main supplies to Crimea, which is obviously their objective. Now, in late 2020, the Belarusian Interior Ministry signed a cooperative agreement with Russia's National Guard. That's the Praetorian Guard that protects Putin in the Kremlin. How much, though, do you think? I mean, there's also were leaked Kremlin documents that came out recently that indicated that Russia plans to fully absorb Belarus by 2030. 
Is there any sense within Belarus itself that the countries are going to be taken over by Russia? I mean, you know, Lukashenko has banned the display of the red and white Belarusian national flag, and, and he's also restricted the use of the Belarusian language. So give me a sense of how Belarusians feel, feel about being absorbed by Russia, which seems to be underway. Well, as and we know that in 2020 there was there were huge protests and the biggest protests in the Belarusian history, and uh, uh, these people who were all were awakened and saw the uh, the brutal crackdown by Lukashenko, and uh, they know that uh, a lot of opposition figures have been in prison for three years for three years already. Belarus has uh, over 1,500 of political prisoners. These people are right across the border in Poland and in Lithuania, and they they are they are lobbying and doing their job, kind of to make the the uh, uh, world aware that Belarus Belarusians do not want to be Russia. And uh, yes, they have limited influence inside Belarus. And but inside Belarus, Lukashenko also doesn't want to give up to give up his power. And also at the same time, well, uh, Russia does have influence over Lukashenko already and uh, absorbing Belarus. What does it mean? Putting another guy who will be ruling this part of uh, the territory. Um, there is. I don't see the point uh, if if Lukashenko is already listening and try and kind of you know ex- 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 showing the loyalty and doesn't have any uh, possibility to maneuver or balance with uh, between east and west, which he ha- he was doing uh, for decades before the protests 2020 erupted. So I would say this is going to be Belarus and Russia provocations, and it's going to stay more or less the same between Belarus and Russia, and uh, uh, the provocations will be happening, but Ukrainians will will stay in the south because it also doesn't make sense to uh, give up successes in the south and will uh, stay in the defensive um, in the north, waiting for F-16 fighter jets, which were promised by uh, the United States, uh, which is also the biggest news. And the uh, Netherlands and Denmark are already uh, showing, almost showing the numbers of F-16 they are going to be supplying to Ukraine. But what has changed, though, since Russia invaded Ukraine is that Russia's efforts to dominate Belarus and Georgia and Moldova, they've always been a little bit restrained. But now, because, I mean, Putin believes and feels that he's not really fighting Ukraine, he's fighting the United States. And he's hoping, obviously, to bring back Donald Trump. That's the best way he can get out of the war that he started that's not going well for him. So he's not particularly restrained now anymore to interfere in Belarus and Georgia and Moldova, right? 
Well, in Moldova, he he failed already. I mean, even though they are trying to influence the government uh, through agents and some kind of spies sending uh, uh, whoever they can, but Moldova would have been under their control if they had successes in the south and Ukraine, if they're if they're a so-called special military operation, which as this was planned, succeeded. Uh, then, then Moldova would have been under Russia's control, of course. Uh, Georgia is uh, kind of more under under Russia's influence these days, as we saw, we see this with Mikhail Saakashvili, uh, you know, being under uh, you know very uh, terrible circumstances. Belarus is uh, these days is already under their influence, and um, as I mentioned. Uh, I don't see, I don't, I cannot think of another better puppet uh, player than Lukashenko for Putin at the moment, for him to be interested to replace Lukashenko, uh, considering all this, uh, 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 all the fighting and all the mobilization that has been going on in Russia. And also we should remember that Putin has his own elections in 2024, which is in March, which is actually, you know, coming up soon. And uh, he also needs to, you know, show some kind of uh, image of himself. Um, Yes, I would agree with you. Those were his plans. Uh, and as we see that not all of these plans are playing well for him, and I'm trying to be optimistic, even though the war is going into 2024, very likely the supplies from the West, uh, military equipment from the West, uh, looks like they are going to be coming up uh, more and more, and uh, the situation with Donald Trump is also, you know, questionable still, so we don't know if he's going to... Uh, even though the popularity is there, still, it's not a, a, a done deal. But is there a possibility then of something completely different to what we're talking about, which we're suggesting that Putin is turning the screws on Belarus and, and controlling it more and more? Is there also an alternative possibility, which is that the Ukrainians do break through, they cut off Russia from Crimea, and have a major battlefield success, would that in any way undermine Lukashenko's control of Belarus and and make Russia sort of look more like a paper tiger than than the, the powerful military occupying force that they would obviously like to see themselves as? Well, I would say that the only uh, kind of uh, window opportunity for Belarus, because uh, uh, if, I mean, when, let's say, uh, Ukraine uh, gains back, returns the south and the Crimea, that should uh, be... uh, uh, a, 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 the the dis, kind of very important news for for Russia maybe maybe it's very you know right now um, I, I I'm I'm guessing you know may may affect some kind some uh, the, the Russian government in some kind of way still they are going to be fighting for the Lugansk and Donetsk regions in in Ukraine Ukraine will be fighting back. 
uh, up up till the last soldier is is leaving Ukrainian territory within the borders of 1991. And when that happens, uh, Lukashenko's fate depends, I would say, on the fate of Russia's government. If Russia's government changes, then Lukashenko is also very likely falling, and the new government in Belarus will uh, uh, will will be you know installed, and that's what the the window of opportunity for Belarusians are, is. And uh, Belarusian diaspora right across the border is uh, on standby. And the Kalinovsky regiment and uh, the battalions, Belarusian battalions, are kind of on the on the Belarusian on Ukrainian territory fighting these days. Also, have in mind uh, freeing Belarus from the uh, regime of Lukashenko. Uh, so that otherwise, I don't see how um, Lukashenko can be overthrown. Uh, so all the basically bets are on Ukraine for Belarus. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, uh, Dr. Tatiana Kulikevich. Thank you for having me, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Tatiana Kulikevich, who's a researcher on Eastern Europe who was born and raised in Belarus. She is a permanent instructor in research methods and quantitative analysis at the University of South Florida School of Interdisciplinary Global Studies and a research fellow and affiliated faculty at the University's Institute on Russian, European and Eurasian Studies, and her research focuses on international political economy, migration and protest politics. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking with Jody Evans, the co-founder and co-director of Code Pink, who the New York Times recently criticized along with her husband and Code Pink. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jody Evans, the co-founder and co-director of Code Pink, who has been a peace, environmental, and women's rights and social justice activist for over 40 years. She served in the administration of Governor Jerry Brown and ran his presidential campaign and is the co-editor of two books, Twilight of Empire, Responses to Occupation, and Stop the Next War Now. Effective Responses to Violence and Terrorism, and she's also produced several documentary films, including the Oscar-nominated The Most Dangerous Man in America and Howard Zinn's The People Speak. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jody Evans. Hi, Ian. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Jody. And on August the 5th, the New York Times ran an article, A Global Web of Chinese Propaganda Leads to a U.S. Tech Mobile. The Tech Mobile is... They're referring to as Neville Roy Singham, who happens to be your husband, and they also were critical of you in this article. And then on August the 8th, I interviewed William Robinson on this program, a distinguished professor of sociology, global studies, and Latin American studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And he had written an article, The Socialism of Fools of the Anti-Imperialist Left, such socialism condemns repression practiced by the U.S. and the governments it supports. Yet 
turns a blind eye or even defends repressive authoritarian and dictatorial states simply because these states face hostility from Washington. So in the context of my interview with William Robinson, we did discuss the New York Times article. So at this point, Jody, what did they get wrong? Well, first of all, it was propaganda. And Ian, I'm, I was kind of sad because you know me so well. I mean, you, I've been on your shows, you know who I am and how long I have fought for the rights and lives of Muslims around the world, including Iran and Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan and Libya and Western Sahara and, you know, of course, Palestine. And, you know, those governments weren't so great either. But the support, my support of Muslim lives has been, I'm a volunteer. This this is what I do with my life. And what and the New York Times, by the way, is the lying organ that took us to the war on Iraq and the global war of terror. And last week or two weeks ago, the cost of war out of Brown University said that is now 4.2 million lives. The New York Times propaganda and lies have cost us. And so the campaign China is not our enemy has been a campaign about the propaganda being spewed by the New York Times. And I just became fodder in that, you know, spewing of propaganda. Um, the I started this campaign, China is not our enemy, because I saw the propaganda and I went, oh, my God, here's smoke. Are we going to war on China? This, this looks exactly the playlist of the war on Iraq and um, that you know, this driving of hate and propaganda towards China. This is a three and a half year old campaign. And plus anybody who knows me knows I don't listen to anyone, um, including my husband, who, by the way, lives in China, but doesn't work for the Chinese government, doesn't know the Chinese government. Probably they don't want to know him or me because I'm not so sure they're fans of activists. But um my position on China is about war, and that's always my position, that we must stop these wars. And what we need is cooperation with China. I mean, Bernie Sanders just wrote that in The Guardian yesterday. I mean, I care deeply about the human rights of Uyghurs. That's why I do this work. I don't want the Uyghurs used as a tool to take, you know, that the U.S. can use to take the U.S. to war on China. I want the human rights and needs of the Uyghurs addressed and not a red flag waving for war. I mean, China has disrupted the new hate on China Congressional Committee from its beginning. It is shades of McCarthyism and always Code Pink has been there when there's smoke to try to stop the fire. Um, and of course, we're getting singed on the way there. Um, that was not a piece of journalism. It was embarrassing for those reporters um, who were, you know, doing the task of the U.S. empire to silence us, um, to suggest that VJ, the People's Forum, Code Pink, myself, listen to anyone. I mean, that's insulting. I've been an activist since 1968. Anyone knows me, knows I speak my mind and that I'm always for peace. Um, so I, you know, like, where are they calling out Kissinger and Bill Gates who are sitting, you know, with Xi? They're, they're calling out us because we're calling out the U.S. war on China and the propaganda that will take us there. Um, so, you know, China is a country of 1.4 billion people, Asia 4 billion. A war on China will affect all of Asia. And, you know, just to say that um, 
Right now, there are already casualties on this U.S. war on China, and they are Asian Americans. And I say Asian Americans because Americans can't tell the difference between what you know, what country you're from in in Asia. So it's affecting all of them. There is a report that just came out a few weeks ago that showed that three in four Asian Americans have experienced hater violence in the last 24 months. Um, I have so many Asian friends that are moving out of out of America because they don't feel safe here. Um, a Nobel Prize biologist, professor at Stanford for 30 years, who just moved back to China because of the abuse and not feeling safe. Um, I mean, Chomsky, you know, he says the New York Times is manufacturing consent for a war. And um, the empire is as stupid as it is insecure. This is not something I listen to independent radio to not get the U.S. talking points. And then, you know, uh, places like FAIR, Caitlin Johnstone, many, many organizations have spoken out um, about the, the New York Times propaganda piece. And for just what it was, um, many organizations across the left launched an anti, you know, no new um, McCarthyism campaign the day after the article ran. This is McCarthyism. It's hate. And it's trying to silence those of us who are trying to stop a war. Um, well, yeah, I'm not silencing you. I'm, I'm welcoming your point of view. I know, but that's what the art, what I'm saying is the New York Times goal was try to silence those of us who are trying to stop a war. Right. Well, you mentioned Bernie. He's got an article at The Guardian, the U.S. and China must unite to fight the climate crisis, not each other. And he points out that the Pentagon spends $900 billion, which is actually low, so over a trillion, more than the next 10 nations combined. China, with the world's second largest military budget, spends $300 billion. And despite the spending these huge amounts of money on defense, both countries are losing the war against the climate crisis. So there is common sense, clearly. Well, that's what so, our campaign is about. That's what China's Not Our Enemy is about. Right. So how do we reverse the trajectory? And it started actually with Trump when he vilified the Chinese and talked about the China virus. started with Obama's pivot to Asia. It started with Obama. Uh-huh. And what did that achieve? He never got that passed, did he? Both him and Hillary Clinton dropped their Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yes, but it still was when... Um, they were failing in Afghanistan that they decided to pivot to Asia as a distraction. So this pivot to Asia has been going on for a while. The United States has 250 military bases surrounding China. China has none surrounding the United States. China has one base outside of China. It's in Djibouti, which the United States asked them to build to partner with them on um, pirates. So... Um, you know, the China culture is a, is a culture of peace. Um, and it is the United States that is driving this war. And it's unconscionable when you consider that this is a, a these are two nuclear powers to be driving war instead of cooperation. Shame. And so you, shame don't see, you don't see a departure, though, with this current leadership from going back to Deng Xiaoping and his successors who were instrumental in 
creating enormous economic ties between the United States and China to couple their economies so that neither country would need to go to war since they are both so closely entwined economically. Janet Janet Yellen will tell you the same. She's the one in the White House saying stop this war on China. The same with Senator Kerry. Two sane voices saying you've got to be cooperating with China for the planet. That is Kerry since the Biden administration started. He has been saying, stop this move to war on China. Janet Yellen has been alerting Biden, like, you cannot do this. The United States cannot afford to decouple from China. That's a mistake. It will hurt the American. This is hurting the American people, but it's hurting the world. Let's look at the war on Ukraine. It is hurting Africa. It is hurting the EU. We have got to stop driving wars. Well, how how were you driving the war in Ukraine? I thought that was started by Putin. Uh, Pushed up against a wall with broken promises from the United States. Do you say the United States does not have blood on their hands with the Ukraine war? Well, I'm saying that the United States, it is a war that Russia is pursuing against its neighbor and doing it in in brutal fashion, destroying cities, homes, uh, people, children, you name it. It's the most obscene yes, thing I've ever seen. It and, is horrible. So why is the United States not at bargaining table? Why is there not diplomacy? Why is there not a ceasefire? The why is because the United States won't go there because even generals would say it. This is a proxy war on Russia. And they're using, it's a horrible, it is disgusting. They are using Ukrainian lives as the front line for their proxy war on Russia and sending weapons to continue the war. Instead of sending weapons, we have to be at the table. There needs to be a ceasefire and negotiations now. Well, the reporting that I've been doing lately indicates that the United States does not want Ukraine to win the war and that they've been undercutting from day one because Jake Sullivan and others in Washington fear that they don't want to push Putin too far and they don't want Russia to collapse and they don't want even more uh, reactionary leaders replacing Putin, like the current National Security Advisor, Petrushev. So I'm not entirely convinced that... I think that it's a much more cynical game that they're playing. They don't really want Ukraine to win. And that is even more cynical than the idea that you're suggesting that this is a proxy war. Well, I didn't. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just repeating what generals have said. So, I, I mean, I'm I'm repeating what I heard from people in power. Um, so, yes, Ian, it is horrific. All wars are horrific. What is happening in Ukraine is heartbreaking, and I'm trying to stop that happening on China because it's not just China. This, you know, a war in Asia is all of Asia, and it's already creating anxiety in Japan, in Taiwan, in. Malaysia, in Vietnam. I mean, we have got to stop the drumbeats of war on China. It's already destroying pristine ecosystems in the islands around China. It's already violating the human rights of the indigenous people who live on those islands by building these missile bases. This has got to stop. That money, that over a trillion dollars, I'm so with you, Ian, it's way over a trillion dollars that is spent on weapons and war needs to be spent on the infrastructure and the needs of the people in the United States. And we have to stop hating on China. That is 
I mean, I had a last week on the Code Pink radio show, I had three Chinese Americans who wouldn't even use their names. They're so frightened talking about what the fear is like to be a Chinese American in the United States. That's shameful. That's just shameful that we're doing that. And so, yes, I'm trying to stop the New York Times from driving propaganda and hate on on China because Chinese Americans are already experiencing it. And not just Chinese Americans, the Chinese diaspora is experiencing it. And that's shameful. But in terms of, of the guns and butter argument, which I don't believe is the central argument in our politics, and it should be. In other words, we spend the bulk of our treasure on refining the quality of death at the expense of the quality of life. That is the ultimate American tragedy. And I don't think you can change American foreign policy until you change the minds of Americans and and have them realize that they don't need to waste all this money on the military, that they could have health care, they could have child care, they could have prosperity and security and clean streets and no homelessness, and, and I could go on. Who's making that argument? Well, certainly Code Pink Every Day and Poor People's Campaign and many organizations, Vets for Peace, um, uh-huh. Massive Peace Action, we are out there every day. I mean, when we disrupted that congressional... But why not the, why not the Democratic Party? It's saying we need to, you know, money for the poor, not war. We do that all day, every day. But no, Congress, do you know that... Um, yeah. Well, it's the only thing they agree on is increasing the defense budget. Yes, there was just a resolution in the NDAA. All it did was ask for the White House to report to Congress on what's happening in Ukraine. And, you know, it didn't get a single Democratic vote. We need like we are being brainwashed about war. That is why The New York Times did a hate piece, a slander piece on myself, Code Pink, my husband, the People's Forum, DJ Prashad from the Tricontinental. These are voices saying this, all, all voices that say exactly what you're calling for. Exactly that is what we're saying. And we are trying, they're trying to silence us. Well, I thank you for joining us, Jody. Thank you for having me, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jody Evans, who is co-founder and co-director of Code Pink, who has been a peace, environmental, women's rights and social justice activist for over 40 years. She served in the administration of Governor Jerry Brown and ran his presidential campaign and is the co-editor of two books, Twilight of Empire, Responses to Occupation and Stop the Next War Now, Effective Responses to Violence and Terrorism. And she's also produced several documentary films, including the Oscar-nominated The Most Dangerous Man in America and Howard Zinn's The People Speak. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by